the terrible desolation and the loneliness of feeling like, could I have done something else? Could I have caught something? Could I have changed that anyway? I think there's such a loneliness in that. And as a parent, parents say to me regularly, you're living our worst nightmare. Yeah. And yes, I am. But I'm also here to tell you that you can't, you know, you don't have to die with them. I, I was determined somewhere I wasn't going to die with them. I had to keep going for my daughter, but for just to nearly to, to have and show that it's possible. Hello and welcome to another of our Human Givens podcasts. I'm Julia Wellstead and today we're very glad and appreciative to be able to talk with Linda Allen. In 2016, Linda Allen launched her book, See You in Two Minutes, Ma, which is an honest and frank account of living with the aftermath of her 15-year-old son's death by suicide. Linda now tells her story to numerous groups in Ireland, which she hopes will bring solace and hope in difficult circumstances, turning adversity into positivity and choosing to live fully in the face of tragedy. Hello, Linda. How are you? Hi, Julia. I'm well, thank you. Brilliant. We're so glad that you're joining us today and so sad to hear of your loss. And actually, on a personal note, as a mother, I can acutely feel how devastating that must be. So we're very, very grateful to you for reaching out to us to share your story. Now, as this podcast is about your experience, I'm wondering if the best place to start is wherever you think the beginning is. Yes. Well, I guess the beginning is maybe to give you a little bit of background about how, how my life was at that time. I had two teenage children, an older daughter and a younger son. Um, I was working a couple of part-time jobs. And Dara was a very lively, curious, you know, really typical teenager in terms of how he was behaving a lot of the time. And we had a quite, you know, we had a nice little life of myself and the two children. We were undivorced and they spent some of their time with their father every other weekend. Um, and he lived quite close by. So their social groups were still, they were still able to access, you know, their friends, which actually really helped the situation. So it was quite a typical life in a way. You know, I was busy. I was trying to pay bills, mortgage, run around from one job to the other and keep it all going with the two teenagers. So it was very, I was always very interested in developing myself, thank God, because and a lot of my work had that kind of ethic about it. That was helpful, but it was also very painful because surely I would have seen some of the signs that were presenting in my son, do you know? Were there any clues, though? Were you aware of anything? Yeah, you know, what I saw was actually a teenager acting out as a teenager. He reminded me of myself. He was definitely testing limits, pushing boundaries. He wasn't that happy in school, but that wasn't untypical of teenagers, especially exactly. he was quite bright, but he wasn't a visual learner. He needed to just hear and he was and he'd take it in very quickly. And he was constantly in trouble for messing and talking back to teachers and that kind of thing. And he wasn't happy with the reputation he got in school. He also was starting to really try out drinking, smoke dope, smoke cigarettes. Not in a massive way, but was definitely experimenting with that. And I noticed him to be a bit more moody, uh, a bit more cheeky, sometimes a bit more tired. But all of this we were dialoguing about. He started to engage with the school counsellor, who he found particularly good. 
But then she went off on sick leave. So there was, you know, I was kind of very aware of what was going on with him. And because we we had conversation, I felt kind of, you know, unhappy at times because he was pushing boundaries. But it's what you'd expect with a teenager. Phone off, ma'am. Sorry, the phone was off and you were trying to ring me off. My battery was dead. A lot of things we've all heard a million times. Yes. You know? But nothing that was very, very worrying. Now, he... He did. I did have difficulty getting him up to go to school because he was starting to not want to go. Was there a reason for that? Just because of the difficulties he was having there? Yeah. Sort of six weeks prior, he came to us, asked, could he change school to where his dad lived? And it was still quite close. And I thought we had a lot of conversation about it. He's his dad and I and his sister. Um, well, she was less part of it. But he decided to change school. And I said, gosh, I thought it was a very mature thing to do. And his commentary on that was, I love walking down the corridor. I can start fresh and the teachers don't have an idea of who I am already. So I thought that was a very positive thing for him. Yes. But I'm not so sure it was now. And maybe I, in the, the couple of years since, uh, well, it's now nearly six and a half years, I've been asking the question, was something else going on in the school that I didn't know about, you know, in terms of with students, probably not with teachers, because I tended to know about that. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure there may have been, but there was nothing really pointing to this, what he actually ended up doing. Nothing. You would have said, yes, he needs support. Yes, he's making choices that I hope will suit him in the long run. We talked about him finishing school early and going on to do some kind of apprenticeship. If school really didn't suit him. He was looking forward to and talking about the future. Yes, yes. Planning Australia. One of their mates had moved to Australia. They were all going to go at the end of school and visit him for that summer. My husband, ex-husband, had a younger uh, child and he was mad about that younger child and used to talk about looking forward to, you know, hanging out with him. There was a 12 year gap between them that, you know, he would be happy to be the bigger brother. And he was a talker, Julia. Dara would share things with me. And there were times when I'd say to a sister, something's going on and I'm not getting through. And she'd bring him for a drive. And that would be where he would share what he couldn't possibly share with me. I was his mother, obviously. There's a, you know, he had a limit there in what he'd yes. tell me. <laughs> yes. But um, but so he, he didn't present as a teenager that you would be having. I used to say there was a bit of an orange, you know, flashing light, but definitely not red alert. And of course, the teenage years are so up and down anyway. You kind of expect that. Yes. So your book is called See You in Two Minutes, Ma, because that's what he said that day, isn't it? The last thing he said to me, and I still, gosh, wonder, did he know when he left? Do you know, I was just in the house. I was supposed to drop him to his dad's. He came in. I was ironing something. And I said, gosh, I didn't think you'd be ready so early. I'm not quite ready. And I said, give me a couple of minutes. And he went, right, so see you in two minutes, Ma. Walked out the door. And that was it. He, he, I, I didn't see him again on, alive. Oh and I'm still fascinated as to what might have gone on there. What did happen? What He walked out of the house at that point. 
Yeah, so in a couple of minutes I went looking for him and he wasn't there and he didn't answer his phone. So I was kind of, I wasn't too bothered. I thought he got distracted with some of his friends, as easily could happen. So I then, after about an hour, rang his dad and I said, look, I used to drop him to you and I don't know what's going on, whether his phone has died or he's not answering. And he said, look, I'll go over in an hour, do whatever you're supposed to do and I'll collect him, I'll find him. It was a small enough village. So I went off, but I didn't feel right. So I came back. Uh, I was going to meet friends and I kind of came back. I just didn't feel right. And then his father came over and he couldn't find him either. And some of his friends were saying, no, I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him. So the night developed like this where he wasn't been seen by his friends and he wasn't answering anybody. You know, I started calling a friend he had in Dublin who he's very close to and said, would you give him a shout just to see? He's not answering his phone to anyone else. So it was getting concerning when he wasn't answering his phone. And eventually we called in the local Garda because we couldn't find him. There were teens looking for him, some of the youth workers. And during that night, nobody came upon him. But the next morning we found him, unfortunately, down by a grove of trees right by the river. And uh, we came upon him right after the first group found him, if you like. But it was really fascinating because his football coach said, I walked by there with my dog. Like, I walked by there more than once. I can't believe I didn't find him. So, you know, it, 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 it's one of those things that there's no explaining what happens to you in that. It's, it's a complete and utter. It's like everything in my world stopped, just absolutely stopped. And you're looking at things and your mind is not computing. It's like, this isn't happening. This cannot be. The absolute disbelief is just, oh, my gosh, it washes right over. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you're looking at it going, this can't be right. This isn't right. Something wrong here. That isn't him. But you know what it is. So it, to me, it's like everything has, has re rebooted since then. And it's a completely different way, you know. So... Yeah, it was very, and, and I still wonder, did he know when he left the house and he said, to see you in two minutes, mm. Matt, it would be a long two minutes. Did he have an idea? It, to me, it, it feels like he knew because his phone was off pretty soon after that. Do you right. Know? Yes. Yes. So it was, yeah. yes, it was pretty soon. How did you find the strength to overcome that? What processes did you go through? What happened next? You know, it's one of those, when you look back, you say, how am I doing this? And I regularly would have said, and to me, one of the greatest things that I gifts I gave myself was to be able to let myself feel all of it. You know, there's, there's this massive resistance to feeling. It's like, I don't want to go there like I was at, at, at the site. No, I don't want to go there. I'm not feeling this isn't happening. Yeah. Whereas there's something in me said, okay, this is happening. You've got to embrace this. And so I allowed myself open up to all of the feeling, horrendous and all as it was, and terrifying. There were times when I was terrified that I felt so bereaved or so broken that I wouldn't be able to get up off the ground. Yeah. But I really learned to navigate it saying, okay, when can I take help? I was much better at taking help than I might have been. You know, some people go, no, I'm grand, I can do this. That stoicism wasn't quite, you know, it was there in a way that supported me. I said, yes, please, I can do that. No, thanks. I can't go near anybody. I can't see anyone today. So I really just came in to me in a way I never had before and said, OK, what now? Keep breathing. 
And sometimes I was raging. I was throwing cushions around the place. I was stomping. I was having tantrums in the house, screaming at his photograph. Sometimes I was just crying. And sometimes I was smiling because I saw a little child playing outside the window. And I just went, life keeps going. Find the little glimmers of hope. And I really looked for them. And of course, you had your daughter to look yeah. after as well. Well, yes, except that she made a very, she was uh, in second year in college and she decided, which was really hard, but I could understand it completely. Ma'am, I can't sleep here anymore. I'm not going to stay here anymore. I can't, I can't. I just can't sleep in this house. So she was around, but she wasn't staying with me. She went and lived with her boyfriend's parents. She thought about her dad's and then she said, so she was around me and I was around her and we were we were very good to be around each other, but not the emptiness when she'd leave at night. I was like, what has happened? Because given that he loved people and there was a lot of teenage activity in our house. He played drums. They used to practice in our kitchen because drum kids hard to move. One of his friends didn't have a curfew and Dara had a curfew. So the deal was they came home to our house and they played Xbox for the the last hour, give or take a half an hour. And he'd hang out in our home with this one guy. Sometimes that was two. Uh, and then I had nothing, only and me. Then nothing. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, it was quite desolate, very lonely. And I think that as a, as a suicide survivor who has had somebody live with it, the terrible desolation and the loneliness of feeling like, could I have done something else? Could I have caught something? Could I have changed that anyway? I think there's such a loneliness in that. And as a parent, parents say to me regularly, you're living our worst nightmare. Yeah. And yes, I am. But I'm also here to tell you that you can't, you know, you don't have to die with them. I, I was determined somewhere I wasn't going to die with them. I had to keep going for my daughter, but for just to nearly to, to have and show that it's possible. And for yourself as well, you, you're also a human being that yes. deserves to keep living, yes. Yeah. yeah. Linda, you mentioned at the beginning something about your background, your profession. I don't actually know what that is. A number of trainings over my life. You know, I began as a Montessori teacher, so I was, I was trained how to observe children and what their needs were. But I ended up working in adult education, and I did things like personal development, confidence building, assertiveness with people who'd returned to education after being many years out of work or out of education. I also worked part-time with children in care. So the two of those really had, had given me a lot of experience in working with adults and children and in how to help people acknowledge what they need and find a way to get there. And most of my work was really helping people to get to know themselves, find out. And I think I had learned to get to know myself, which is why I was able to support myself going forward. Do you know, I'm too tired now. I just need a rest. So I had spent a lot of time with people saying, what do you need? You know, how do you work? Are you a carrot person? Are you a stick person? What supports do you have in place already? So I was automatically identifying what supports I had and what helped me. And so I had done that with a lot with people in one on one context and in a classroom setting. So I had the grounding, if you like, to support myself, which I didn't realize I'd ever need in the way that I needed it. But I did use it, which is fantastic, because it had been kind of, I'd been reconditioning myself over many years. 
yes, to try course. and find ways to heal that because it started with anxiety in my 20s. That's what got me interested in knowing how people work and how best to support myself and others, do you know? Yeah. And did you at some point turn to therapy or counselling? It was a couple of years in, about yeah. two years. And again, I had a lot of support, mostly through complementary therapies that I was using. But then I began a regular support. And it wasn't a bereavement counselling. She's a, a psychotherapist. But I would go to her even still. It, it can be a check-in for me. And she's also a supervisor for my personal work. So I do regularly attend that psychotherapist now. But I, for the first little while, I didn't feel... I had enough in my toolkit in terms of people that I saw. So I might have gone for an energy balancing session or I might have gone for polarity therapy counseling, which is kind of the therapy I trained in. So I did little bits, but it wasn't as consistent as I do in the last number of years. I think that is often the case with bereavement is the in the early stages. It's maybe not terribly useful to rush off to a therapist. No, you don't know what you feel. You, there, there's such a deluge of feelings, you know, such a deluge. And they come in waves. And I used to describe it like a tsunami. And the, the waves just came and they'd knock me off my feet. And then then there'd be a little pause, a, a two minute pause. And I go, oh, my God, catch my breath. I'm just going to be I'll catch my breath. I'm going to be OK. I'm actually going to eat now. I'm going to have something to eat. And then the next wave would come and absolutely knock me out again. But then the waves got smaller. And the spaces got bigger. So in the in the gaps between the waves, I'd say, okay, what do I need? Oh God, I just need nature. And I'd literally drive to the sea, or I'd drive to a park, and I'd stand behind beside a tree, and I'd go, okay, I'm just standing here and letting the tree support me. I was really very clearly working in some on some level that I actually would would mind working at that level again. You know, now I'm a few yeah. years past that but it really did save me and I'd say to people you can find the simplest pleasures in the smallest of things mm. no matter how bad you feel let yourself look for that you know mm. let yourself look what can I do that will help me now how can I make this better it strikes me there it's almost an animal level connecting to the tree and the the sea and you know basic human survival at a level that you don't really need to have in this life in this busy world you know unless you're hit with something quite traumatic tell us more about your book linda when did yeah. you write it one of my supports has always been to journal and i really recommend it for people who like to write it's a fantastic way to put your thoughts on a page and and take i found when i journaled it just cleared some of the the debris that was hanging around and i got a bit clearer so i was journaling for quite a long time and after he died i couldn't journal for a couple of months so i i was a bit at such a loss but when i began journaling again I realized that I was really writing about feelings in such a raw way and they started to gain momentum and I started to feel like this was kind of different to the journal and uh, many sleepless nights as you can imagine I was sitting up and one night I thought see you in two minutes ma'am my god imagine that would make an amazing name for a chapter or a book and as I wrote it down I started to write underneath it and it felt very different and it felt much more like this was something that I wasn't going to do just for me. This this was a, a sharing piece. So I kept writing it. And after a couple of weeks, 
I started to say it to people, gosh, I'm writing something and it's feeling a bit different. And I said it to my brother who had a close friend who I had known from years and years ago. Um, and he was a criminologist and he's very academic. And he used to, we used to joke about how I spoke in a different language to him because he'd say, you're so emotional. <laughs> you're so emotional. And he's so, you know, so not that. So what happened was, he said, can you send me what you're writing? I'd love to, I'd love to read it. And he came back with an, uh, an overview of, oh my God, this has to get out there. You've no idea how helpful this could be. And I really get this, given that I'm so, you know, intellectually biased. I really get this at a level that I think is worth sharing. And he became my mentor. I used to send him chapters and it felt really empowering. And then he, he helped me send away to publishers looking for a publication. And I was naive enough to think that would, that would be simple. It wasn't and it took a long time. And eventually we self-published and uh, I used a crowdfunding scheme. That was all learning, Julia. And it yeah. really, thing for me was it gave me a great focus personally. I didn't know what my life purpose was anymore. My daughter felt quite self-contained. You know, the the very hands-on mothering was done. He was gone. So, uh, you know, and I was really evaluating everything in my life. You can't go through what I've gone through without evaluating everything from every decision you've made to every belief system you have. And the book kind of helped with that. So I launched it in 2016 with Niall Breslin, who's quite famous here as Brezzy. Um, and young people love him. Um, so he's a very powerful mental health campaigner and he agreed to come and launch the book. And so we had a fabulous turnout. And in that, when I was speaking that evening, my God, I really felt something really empowering when I was speaking. And the feedback was that I was able to do that in a way that really reached people. So there's been a lovely kind of dovetailing of book and that going out there, people contacting me and saying, you've helped me or can I have a one to one just chat? Sometimes it's not even on a professional level. It's just a chat. I'm often available for that. Or people have now asked me, would I come and speak to groups who are bereaved or people who are dealing with stress even or who feel like life is too hard? It's amazing the scope that it has opened in terms of just some of what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis are it's very helpful for people who are trying to navigate this crazy world that we're now living in. What advice would you give to others who've experienced suicide of a loved one? The first thing I would say is be careful the, the questioning that you're asking, you know, the questions that you're giving out to yourself. Many people spend so much time asking why. Why did it happen? Why him? Why us? Why, why me? They ask, what could I have done? And they're, they're only helpful to a point that I found that they were really tormenting me, asking those questions over and over. If you can't get some kind of feeling of resolution, then you've got to change your questions and ask something else, you know. And I would say to them that you did everything you could. It wouldn't be the way it is if, if it was supposed to be another way. You know, everything you did was part of a picture. Don't drive yourself nuts. And I would say, make sure that you find out how you are. You know, make sure that you are looking for the help that's there if you need it. Make sure that you're saying yes to life.
where you can. You have to feel all of the feelings. You will be raging and angry. You will be really sad. You'll feel like your life can never be the same. But not the same isn't the same as terrible. It can be transformed into something better. And there's always a way to help you find a glimmer of hope. You just need to look. And the questions I ask are, how can I help myself today? How can I help myself to feel better? What can I do? Sometimes helping myself feel better is doing something for someone else. And I find a lot of people who've been bereaved by suicide end up starting up fantastic organizations or volunteering in places, whatever it is that brings you comfort in a moment. And it is a moment. That's the other thing I would say. It's incremental. Let yourself have change bit by bit. Take one step and then the next step and then the next step. And you just start to build on that and you'll find, gosh, I went a couple of hours today and I felt okay. I heard myself laugh. Wow, that was an interesting sound. How great is that? Can I do more of that? So going slowly and sometimes even still, you know, a radio song came on yesterday and I was devastated again going, oh my God, the devastation feels as strong as it was. But I don't feel it as often. Sometimes I'm just teary and sad in a moment. But it's learning to just be with it as it arrives, do you know? And there are moments where I say, can I actually just move beyond this now and not, you know, when it comes and I say, okay, what can I do now? I really need to feel this. No, you know what? I don't right now. I'm actually okay to go to the next thing. I can come in for a moment here and get back to peeling the potatoes and just really focus on that and peeling the spuds. Do you know? You almost have to give yourself permission to feel okay as well. Absolutely. There's a certain guilt in laughing or feeling all right that you have to dispense with. And your words, I actually said that out loud. I'm giving myself permission to live with this and learn to accept it and not drive myself mad, insane, wondering what I could have done. Because I, I, I couldn't, there's nothing I can do now except what I've just said. And I really appreciated what you said early on about not losing your life as well as his. And, and I like to speak about it. My daughter doesn't. She would say, I do it privately, ma'am. I don't, I couldn't do what you do. Do you know? So she has her own way. And I think that's also very true. We can't superimpose a way through grief for over a whole lot of people. Everyone has their own way. So it's just finding out what your way is and how you know your way is working is you start to feel little fragments of hope, of joy. You start to feel like potential is there again. That's how you know that what you're doing is working. Now, the 10th of September is World Suicide Prevention Day. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think having specific awareness days is helpful? I think awareness days are helpful. I I think for some people who feel really isolated, you know, like I, I, I alluded to earlier, there's an isolation in losing somebody to suicide. And there's also a lot an isolation in feeling so terrible, in feeling so awful that, you know, it's such a dark place that there is no light. And my feeling about a, an awareness day is that it really helps those people to know, look, we are as a society aware that there are things in people's lives that feel very heavy and they feel like they're insurmountable. But actually, there's a way through. And if we have an awareness, it says, you know, there are options. There's always an option that isn't suicide. And for people who have come out the other side of suicide, or as in maybe have made an attempt, 
that they are now looking to rebuild their lives. And then the people who have been bereaved by suicide, that they also know they're not on their own. And given the figures in Ireland and the UK and even in the States and Europe, people know there's a lot more of it about. But that doesn't take away from the feeling of being lonely in it. You know, that it's a very it's a very it's a very challenging journey to have to go through on any of those levels. The one word I'm wondering about is prevention. I'm not sure how preventing, you know, honestly, can we really prevent anyone? Truthfully, we can really try and give people as many supports as there are and really alert them to the fact that there are other ways. And I guess that's what I feel a day or a number of awareness campaigns can do. But at the end of the day... It's, it's a difficult one to know, actually stop it altogether. I stumbled over the word prevention a bit when I was uh, looking at that just now. Yeah. I think you're right because it suggests there that we can prevent someone else attempting suicide, which maybe we can't. In a lot of instances, we can't. It's just even if it was a giving a connectivity or a lust for life or it's those kinds of words I think would be far to me would make more sense than than preventing. But at the same time, I think the idea of the day is good for those reasons. I guess my, my motto really has been any chance you get smile, cry when you need to. And if it all gets too much, just reach out for help. There's always help there. You just need to look for it. Thank you so much, Linda, for sharing this with us. It shows real strength, I think, to be able to share such a tragic story. Thank you, Julia. It's been a really fascinating and informative conversation for me and I'm sure for our listeners. We will add a link to your website and book onto our podcast page. And for those of our listeners who wish to find out more, go to that website, have a look at the book. So thank you to Linda. Thank you all for listening. Please share this podcast with anyone for whom you think it might be useful or meaningful. Thank you for listening and bye for now.